Our scripture reading from this morning is Colossians 1, verses 21 and through 23. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the living word of God for us today. Thank you, Carol. Well, I greet you as well this morning. My name's Lloyd Shadrach, for those who who may be visiting. Um, I'm one of the teaching pastors here, along with Rob Sweet, who is our lead pastor. We are one church in two congregations, so I think many of you know this, but again, a reminder that we have a congregation in Brentwood. There are three services that go on there today. Rob is teaching there, and of course, we have our two services here. I'm teaching here, and I'll be teaching there next week, and Rob will be teaching here. And we say that, especially to guests, to to let you know, uh, not to be surprised when you see another face here at the pulpit. And it's rooted in our deep conviction uh, of team and plurality in leadership, even in the pulpit itself. In 1995, after they had combed through all of the research up to that time, which was enormous in and of itself, uh, professors Roy Baumeister and Mark Leary proposed a theory that was not new, but as they said in the research itself, their, in their conclusion, they said it has been significantly underappreciated, this theory that they sought to, to, to uh, prove. They, what they proposed was called the belongingness hypothesis. So you know how science works. There's a, they make a hypothesis that, we're made to belong, that's the hypothesis. And then they seek to prove it. Is, is that true that there's this sense to which we were made to belong? Um, they, as, they, as they did their research, and, and this is kinda comes out at the back end, it's kinda anticlimactic, honestly, for, for those who hold to the scripture, in, in what feels like a tremendous understatement, at least to me, you know, the, the research paper ends with this. We conclude then that the present state of empirical evidence is sufficient to confirm the belongingness hypothesis. And they said, and it is, the need to belong can be considered a fundamental human motivation, end quote. And and I kind of smiled at that because I said, gosh, yeah, that's, that's really what the scriptures tell us from the very beginning. In other words, I, I would propose the, the belongingness hypothesis is simply a discovery, if you will, of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In the creation account, humanity is made in the image of God, and in the image of God, we were made for relationship with God and with each other. Uh, that God made us to belong, uh, it remains true. It's a fundamental part of being made in his image and what he declared in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone, is an eternal truth. In God's design, it's, we were made, this is not new to us, but it's always good to be reminded. We were made for relationship. We were made to belong. And may I say, first, foremost, 
and above all other belongings is to belong in a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. And I think in part, this explains when you think about the Genesis account and the fall, you know, when, when man rebelled against God. Do you notice in that fall that the serpent, unlike when the serpent tempts Jesus, when, when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, it wasn't a temptation to worship him. It, it was the temptation to break their trust with God. In other words, to break the relationship with God. And the truth of the matter is, he knew then and knows now that human beings out of relationship with God will worship him. <laughs> you can't, there's no other way around. We'll worship him. And therefore, his attack was on our relationship with God. I say this, we're, we're coming out of, our, in our study of Colossians, uh, the most Christ-exalting song, a literal lyrical song in the New Testament, if not the Bible, that speaks of the exaltation of Jesus. That's Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And so from this exalting of the person and work of Jesus, it's, it's rather shocking as Carol read it. We don't, we don't feel it, but there's a sense in which he goes from that exaltation and the next, when the song's over, his eyes immediately go to you, <laughs> to me. It's like it, it goes upon us. And he speaks now of the, the reality and the implications. What does it mean that Christ is who he is and has done what he has done? Paul's gonna present those implications in three parts. And this is gonna be a rather simple overview, but profound in terms of what it communicates. And I've got the board up here because I want you to see this in sense of a timeline and you'll see it up on the side screens. But Paul is gonna, Paul is gonna present our, our past. Then he's gonna speak of our present And then he's going to speak of our future. And I just want you to watch the words he uses. He will speak of what we once were, what we now are, and what we will be. Look in your Bibles at Colossians. We're in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 1. And I want you to note, as Paul turns from this great high hymn, uh, he, he says, get back over in my Bible here, and you, it's in an answering, so Christ, 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 and you, and you, that's us, and you who once were, now we're in our, you, you once were this, and so he looks back and he's speaking to Christians here in Colossae, the church, the small gathering of those who've put their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and you who once were, and he uses some really strong language, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put these up here on the board, and the key term, I think, in all of it is alienated. He says hostile in mind and doing evil. Now, 
apart from relationship with Christ, Paul is adamant and, and, and dogmatic in other places as well, uh, that we are separated. Think of the word alienated. This is that whole thing in the garden. When they, when they turned from God, they were, boom, they were alienated. That's to be far apart and separated, not belonging. Hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. Not, you know, I could, I could do with God or without God. That's not what Paul says our, our, our minds were before we trust Christ. No, Paul says our minds were hostile, which carries the idea of God was an enemy. We were, we were against God. And then he goes so far as to say, doing evil deeds that we, not only was our, well, in, in fact, they're connected. Don't we know that? The heart, thoughts, emotions, desires, they're connected. So hostile in mind, evil deeds. They go together. Uh, at um, Brentwood last week, it, we had uh, baby dedications. And I think it was at least 12 13, 14 babies dedicated. And um, I was, and so then I'm teaching this. And you know, when you see those babies up there and there were a few of the services, typical Southern baby dedication, where the boys and the girls were in gowns. I always tease my son because he was dedicated in a white gown. You know, and so they're in these gorgeous white gowns. These babies are cherub. And, and, and I said, you know, when you look at the babies, do you, do you think in your mind alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. No. But what does the Bible tell us? You know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying here. I'm not throwing babies under the bus, but I'm saying theologically, we are born alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, I know you're familiar with this, all have sinned and fall short the glory of God. Some might say, even some of us can at times say, nah, I, I know I was lost, but I wasn't that. I mean, God, I was just apathetic. And, and the scripture simply leaves no room for that. And Jesus is the final word on it when he says, whoever is not with me, Matthew 12, whoever's not with me is what? Yeah, he doesn't say whoever's not with me um, is neutral. There, there's no neutrality. To not be with him is to be against him, alienated, hostile in mind, and deed. Philip, author, makes this statement, every problem of humanity can be traced to alienation from God. And I believe that's true. Every issue problem can be traced back to brokenness from God. When you think about the creation account and their sin, Adam and Eve's, just kind of, if you just trace the story just a little ways, you know, obviously in that moment, they're suddenly alienated from each other. She did it, I, you know, she made me, the serpent did, the ground is cursed, everything just goes to pot. It really becomes a mess. And now they're booted from the garden in God's great mercy, actually, they're, 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 they're removed from the garden. And then if you, if you kind of watch the family tree grow, you know, you don't get far. I mean, you're not even, you can't even get to Genesis 6 before, before Adam and Eve have two boys and probably in the prime of their life, you know, in, in, the prime, in the prime of their life, the older one kills the younger one. So, so now you, I mean, think about this. You, you've got two kids and one kills the other. And then that one begins a journey, and quite frankly, the journey of his life is as a fugitive, on the run, continually rebelling from God, alienated, 
never belonging. That's just the start. And it goes from there. Certainly, every problem in humanity can, can be traced to our alienation from God. But the good news, of course, there's good news. Because now he speaks of what we are. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil leads, he has now. So we now are what? And he uses this word reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Uh, Jesus, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? As Paul speaks here, he says, in his body of flesh by his death. It's like emphatically he wants us to understand. You understand Jesus, you understand Jesus was a human being. And in his body, and why does he stress that? Because there was, it was a subtle teaching and, and still remains even to this day that Jesus wasn't a man. He was a spirit. The Bible doesn't teach that. There's no atonement, there's no payment for human sin if a human being doesn't pay the penalty. Spirits don't die. No, so he makes clear, you understand Jesus, and this is what within you know, a generation of, of, of Jesus' real life, Jesus bore on his body our sin. As a human being, he paid the penalty for our sin. And when he says that, that immediately puts us really not just in our past, but it puts us in the, the past past. You know, back then, for us, you know, we're looking back 2,000 years. For them, they were looking back uh, 30, 40 years. You know, back then, at that moment, you were reconciled to God because Jesus paid the penalty that separated you and he satisfied the wrath of God. He was buried, he rose again. And therefore you, because you are trusting in Christ, you are now reconciled with God, brought back together, the relationship restored. And then note, he goes into the future he has, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. So will be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. Holy means not, understand the concept of holy is not just without sin. The idea of holy in the Bible is separated from. So, okay, here's sin and you're in sin. Well, in being holy, you're separated from sin. That's part of it, separated from. But you are separated unto God. So see, holiness is not just you're separated from sin, so you're out here. No, you are separated from sin and you are separated unto holiness. Righteousness. Blameless, without fault. Above reproach. One of the qualifications of an elder, above reproach, meaning nothing sticks. The father of lies says, you're this, you're that. Boom, it just falls off. Nothing sticks because you're above reproach reproach. And in a sense, do you notice how what Paul is saying is what you once were, um, this is who you're going to be because who you will be is not who you once were. 
Why? Because we are reconciled. Everybody with me so far? So, before we come to faith in Christ, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, separated, alienated from God. When we put our trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are reconciled. We are brought back into right relationship with God. And we know from this place, the day we die or Christ returns, our future is to be presented before God the Father because we're in Christ, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Everybody got it? Now, we tend to trip up a little bit here on verse 23, 23, I think, because he says, if indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Why, why do we trip up on that verse? Somebody tell me. Yeah. <laughs> what does the, the if tell us? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you kind of go, this is great news until we read that next one and we go, I hope I hang on. Okay. And that's not what it says. That's not what it means. Uh, I'm not going to camp on this because, quite frankly, it's not what he meant. And it's not that, in this context, it's not a big deal. Can I say that? What he's saying here, and I'm going to give you three reasons. Paul, there's no, there's, there's, no, there's no losing of your salvation. Let me just start right there. That once saved, always saved. You can say it however you want. But if you have genuinely put your faith in Christ, you are forgiven of all your sins, you're clothed in Christ's righteousness, you're indwelt by the Spirit, you're adopted by God, you could go on and on, we're reconciled, we're restored. That, that cannot change. We are held in the hand of Christ. Well, then what does he mean right here about, you know, if you, if you keep on? Well, let's think about this. The context of the book itself and the context of Paul's words um, He's writing to a specific church, a a group of people in Colossae. And in that particular church, there are, we're going to find, there are teachers who are coming along and saying, look, Jesus is a great place to start. But there's something else. This is, what they're, this is what they are facing, okay? And this is what Paul is addressing. You, are you with me? And so you notice Paul's, Paul's words here. Think about the, think about the words that he uses, uh, even as, as he says this. If you continue in, in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, not moving off the gospel you heard from Epaphras. And that gospel Epaphras taught was the gospel of Paul, which said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, period, end of discussion. And he's exhorting these Colossians, don't, don't buy into the, there's more, there's this secret knowledge, you know, I need to worship angels or you need to be ascetic and, and do, not do certain things. That's where he's gonna go in the letter. It's not a context about assurance of salvation at all. That's one thought I'd offer you. The second is, uh, to continue in the faith is an absolutely common refrain in our Bibles. This is nothing new. It continue in your faith because the, 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 we've 
I mean, read the book of James, you know, and James's exhortations constantly, continue in your faith, remain steadfast. Acts 14.22 reads, strengthening, he speaks of Christ to Christ's followers, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. Continue on in your faith because you're gonna face many trials and tribulations. So keep going. The second thought I would offer you around this and the third one would simply be this, the grammar. There is some... This is not, there's no dogmatism in this grammatically. This is a first class conditional statement. And, and there's some, it's, it's over my head, quite frankly. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and it, you can read a lot. But a first class conditional statement. There's some debate, but where, where it tends to lean in the argument, even in this passage, is when you have a first class conditional statement, there's the assumption, it's an assumption of what already is, such that Douglas Moo, who's a, profoundly sharp uh, biblical scholar and um, New Testament scholar, he, he, he says this, and with the first class conditional statement, what way this Paul is writing this is, is not if you continue, it's if, as I'm sure you'll continue. That's, that's the idea. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to dodge the bullet on this one, but that's what the Greek, some of the best Greek scholarship would say with this conditional statement, if, as I'm assuming you will, continue in the faith. Here's the, and the last one I would just offer you is the whole of scripture. Are there verses in our Bibles that can kind of like, oh my gosh, that, that seems seem like you can lose your salvation. There are those verses that seem that way. Can I tell you about them? They're difficult, they're cloudy, they're very hard to interpret. Can I tell you about the myriad of verses that are clear, point blank, not hard to <laughs> interpret at all, that affirm the assurance of our salvation? See, it's overwhelming in the whole scope of scripture that we are assured once we are in Christ, we are always in Christ. I, I wrote this in my notes this morning because all of us have people, we know people go, well, you don't know about so-and-so. He believed in Christ or she believed in Christ and now she doesn't. I think they've lost. I, I know there are, there are those situations. I would say this, if you stop believing, according to the Bible, you never truly believe. That, if that gets to the bottom, if, if someone truly just rejects Christ at some point later in life after they've trusted Christ, then, then the scripture would in, in, infer that, well, they never genuinely had genuine saving faith. But if you have put your faith in Christ, the assumption of the Bible is you will persevere because God has given you that faith to believe and you will believe to the end. So, I could go to other verses. I'm not going to this morning, but I'm glad to talk with anyone if they still struggle with the assurance of salvation. Paul, by the way, when he does speak about assurance of salvation in the book of Romans, let's just go there and we go, okay, now here, okay, here it comes because this is all about justification. Do you know what he says? He says, those whom God called, those whom he called, he even goes before it to say those whom he predestined or foreknew. But those who he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. He speaks of being glorified. Paul speaks, by the way, in Romans, of what we will be glorified in past tense. You want to know how secure your salvation is? If you're in Christ, you're already glorified positionally in him. And so Paul, even there, would speak of it in the past tense. 
cannot remove yourself from the hand of Christ. Well, last thing I want to show you is before you trusted Christ, the truth of life is you lived with a crown on your head. I'm the Lord of my life. That's how we live. That's who we were. I'm, I'm king. I'm, 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 I'm all. When you put your faith in Christ, and by the way, do you remember Rob had us draw this in our notebooks? Because when the exalted Christ is lifted up, we recognize that, oh my, Jesus, Jesus alone is king. When you and I place our faith in Christ, the Bible says, it says it two ways, which is interesting. It says we, like you were, you were this, but once you place your faith in Christ, you know what? You take the crown off your head and you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. So you, you understand, we are, we are in Christ Jesus. All that, all that we read about in 15 to 20 about Jesus, you understand, we're in that. I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to describe that to you other than that's who you are in Jesus. That makes sense, that's who we are in Christ. Therefore, that's why we can say who we will be, listen, who we will be is who we are right now in Christ. So when we stand before God the Father, we stand, what, we stand in what Christ is, holy, blameless, and above reproach. And as God the Father looks at you now, last thing on this, let's just, God the, God the Father, as he looks upon you and I, can I tell you what he sees right now? You may not feel it. You may be thinking, not, no, I don't think so. I've had a bad week. Not, not because of what I did last night. That's, no, God looks and he sees Christ. He sees you right now in Christ, all who are in Christ Jesus. And you say, I know, Lord, but my life doesn't look like Jesus. Neither does mine. Thank God. God doesn't look at me based on my, what I did, per se, or my thoughts and attitudes, because I sin all the time there. Thank God he looks upon me as in Christ Jesus. And the Christian life is becoming more and more who I already am in Jesus. That's the Christian life. And I'll never arrive. There's no arrival. There's just growth, development, and growing in Christ-likeness. question always is, are you in Christ Jesus.